So I'd like to begin tonight by reading a story. And I'd like to ask you to see what part of the story, or if there is a part of the story, that particularly resonates with you, and particularly perhaps at, at the particular time in, of this particular time of your life. So, this is a story about a young woman who was on a hiking trip in the woods in Alaska. And she became somehow separated from her friends. I don't know how it happened, she recounted. One minute I was following the footprints and the sounds of the person in front of me, and the next minute it seemed they were gone. Maybe I was daydreaming. Maybe I was thinking of the meal we would prepare together when we stopped. All I knew was that I was alone. At first, I didn't worry. I was sure they would come back to look for me. Then everything became strange. I realized I had no idea of how much time had passed since we had separated. It could have been minutes. It could have been hours. The woods suddenly seemed to be filled with noises, none of them friendly. I imagined I heard bears stalking me. The undergrowth seemed filled with menace. Then those sounds were drowned out by another. I realized it was the pounding of my heart, the sound of my own blood raging through my body. I was sure I was going to die as I sank deeper and deeper into my own panic and terror. I curled up on the forest floor with my arms wrapped around me, lost in the horror of my own darkness. I thought of how awful my own life was, the marriage I was fleeing from, my failure with my children, the people I had hurt. The thoughts of my own inadequacy and darkness seemed endless. Everything seemed pointless. My empty relationships, the degrees I'd worked so hard to win, the love I'd tried so hard to earn, they all seemed meaningless, and were all in vain, ending in my death on this forest floor. It seemed like hours that I lay there and wailed and cried, like a baby who had lost her mother. My aloneness was like a black and bottomless pool. I was its victim and its creator. I sobbed and moaned and screamed out my hopelessness and terror. I cried out for help and knew it would never come, had never come, when I needed it most. At last, exhausted, the tears and the sobs ended, and as I lifted my head, I realized that the light had changed. Gratefully, I felt uh, the breeze cool my flushed face and began to look around me. The vast stillness of the forest was still there. It seemed eternal. As I rubbed my swollen eyes, I saw the ways that the sun was reflecting off the greenery and the swaying of the branches in the breeze. Silently, hardly moving the branches, she came. A young deer stepped out onto the path in front of me. A path that hadn't even been visible to me when I had cast wildly about in my terror. 
She seemed born of the woods and stood there lifting her nose to smell the breeze. She was so at home, so complete, so at one with the forest. I was entranced and watched her with a dreamlike calm as she stepped carefully through the undergrowth. She was alert to danger, but totally composed. It came to me that the difference between me and the deer was that fear for the deer was an ally, alerting her to danger, connecting her with her world. For me, fear was an enemy, driving me out of myself and out of my world. I got to my feet and slowly followed her. The path that was there for her was also there for me. After a time, the doe, sensing something imperceptible, ran off into the woods. I watched her go, filled with gratitude. Keeping my eyes on the path, I was filled with a certainty that it would lead me to safety. To stay with the path that at times was covered with creeping undergrowth, I needed to be so totally awake that I lost all consciousness of time. My body seemed to lose its boundaries. The branches grazed my face and the sun touched me. A deep peace filled me. I felt I was the forest. The forest was me. It came as a surprise to me when I realized I could smell wood smoke and could hear voices in the distance. When I stepped into the clearing where my friends had made camp, they came running with relief and concern etched on their faces. I never could explain to them the journey I had made in being lost. So this is a talk tonight about losing our way. It does seem that life at times is not what we expect. It's not turning out the way we wanted or how we expected it to be. Even if we do get what we want, it often seems as if it's still not quite right. And if we don't get what we want, we are filled with ideas of how it could be or how it should be. If only, if only. We feel quite lost at times in the middle of our lives. And maybe even fantasize that there is some other life somewhere living in a parallel universe that is actually the right life for us if we could only find it. I think this is a rather universal experience at times in our lives. The reality of our lives not matching what we had set out to do or what we had imagined would be. I was thinking, I was thinking today about the Buddha and realized that this was even true for him as a young man. He lived as a prince in a palace, but he left. He left that life behind. And imagine what his friends must have thought of him, you know, going off and 
becoming a homeless monk, leaving behind the life of comfort and sure security. And yet that's what he chose, to, to go off in search of something that perhaps he, he himself couldn't even articulate. And in that search, there were times when he did get completely lost, kind of not certain what to do next, not knowing where he was going exactly. So that in this journey he made, there may have been at times a feeling of disorientation, of having blown it, and others might have certainly deemed him a failure. But he was on this inner journey. And it seems that this inner journey requires that we take some risks, that we, ri- that we risk failing in order to find a deeper truth. The poet Rumi, Rumi must have written poems about almost everything in the world. He's a wonderful resource when you're giving Dharma talks. So here's a poem about the importance of failing. Who would have imagined the importance of failing? God fixes a passionate desire in you and then disappoints you. God does that a hundred times. But sometimes your plans work out. You feel fulfilled and in control. That's because if you were always failing, you might give up. But remember, it is by failures that lovers stay aware of how they are loved. Failure is the key to the kingdom within. It doesn't always feel that way. But in looking back, we can see, oh, wow, when that didn't work out, this I was really thrown back in some way to take another look, to go deeper within, to find some other resources in myself that perhaps I didn't even know were there. Failure tests us. It forces us to enter into a kind of darkness at times. It challenges everything we think we know. We could say it forces us into not knowing. I want to talk a little bit about this this quality of not knowing in practice. In life, not knowing is seen as somehow attached to shame or not being smart. But in practice, it's actually seen quite differently. The Buddha's invitation always was and continues to this day. You, I remember this at the beginning of my practice, hearing this invitation to come see for yourself if what I say is true. It's a very generous invitation of the Buddha. Don't believe it just because I say it, but come test it in your own experience. And I remember feeling what a 
unique and generous thing that was and how it, it sort of invited me in a way that I, I had rarely experienced in my life. But that I, I liked that, that I, could, I was being asked to look in myself to see if something was true rather than just to believe it. Later on in our journey, come see for yourself begins to seem a little less attractive, perhaps, because it's asking that we actually trust what we find inside, that we trust our actual experience. And our actual experience is often either not so clear or clearly, I don't know. And we resist that. We want to know. We want to be certain. We want to have the answer. We want to get clear. That's why we came to meditation. We want clarity. I want some clarity in my life. (laughs) We feel like we're getting our money's worth if we have the right insights and we get the clarity and the Pema Chodron talks beautifully about this desire we all have for certainty. And she reminds us that this path, this practice of the Buddha, it's, it's a paradoxical path because it's called the middle way. And the middle way leads to clarity, but in the process it doesn't give you a lot to hold on to. She says, in the middle way, there is no reference point. The mind with no reference point does not resolve itself, does not fixate or grasp. To have no reference point is to change a deep-seated habitual response to the world, wanting wanting to make it work out one way or the other. If I can't go left or right, I will die. When we don't go left or right, we feel like we are in a detox center. (laughs) This middle way is wide open, but it's tough going because it goes against the grain of an ancient neurotic pattern that we all share. We want to resolve our, our situation When we feel lonely, when we feel hopeless, what we want to do is move to the right or to the left. We don't want to sit and feel what we feel. We don't want to go through the detox. Yet, the middle way encourages us to do just that. It encourages us to awaken the bravery of doing that, the bravery that exists in everyone without exception. Meditation provides a way for us to train in this middle way by staying right on the spot. This straightforward discipline prepares us to stop struggling and discover instead a fresh, unbiased state of being. That's what this invitation is to discover a fresh, unbiased state of being. Tony Packer, another Zen teacher, a former Zen teacher, 
speaks also about this in her own practice. She said, remembering how some years ago when she would sit for hours in the zendo, she would notice a certain point, a question arising, the question of, how am I doing? Am I getting somewhere? Very common wondering, you know, what am I doing sitting here? What's happening? Where, where, you know? She said it became apparent after a while that she was wanting to know what was happening and she didn't know. And she realized that sitting quietly requires not knowing. But first, you have to clearly recognize the tremendous desire to know. Experience it directly as it is happening. To see this powerful urge to know and to question it and to realize that maybe we don't have to know everything. That actually in not knowing, something else can happen. So in our practice, we have the opportunity to recognize both this powerful urge inside of us to clarify, to get certain, to, and also to begin to explore in a kind of open and curious way, what if I just let myself not know? What would that be like? What is the actual experience of saying to myself, I just don't know. Letting go of all the ideas of failure and shame and not being good enough, just, you know, I just don't know. What happens in that state? There's a cartoon of Calvin and Hobbes that, um, this, is, this is actually Calvin and, I mean, Hobbes and his wife in the middle of the night, having one of those middle-of-the-night conversations in bed, neither of them can sleep, his wife says, are you still awake too? And Hobbes says, hmm, I was thinking. He says, it's funny, when I was a kid, I thought grown-ups never worried about anything. I trusted my parents to take care of everything, and it never occurred to me that they might not know how. I figure that once you grew up, you automatically knew what to do in any given scenario. I don't think I'd have been in such a hurry to reach adulthood if I'd known the whole thing was going to be ad-libbed. <laughs> we think somehow there's this certainty. Somebody knows. Well, in meditation, we consider this not knowing really to be a very significant opportunity, a doorway, actually. Because in the actual living immediacy of opening to, I don't know, what is present in that state? What do you sense in yourself? If you just say, I don't know, what do you sense? Anyone? Vulnerability. Failure. Failure. What if it wasn't failure? It's just I don't know. 
What? Curiosity. Curiosity. Honesty. Honesty. It's very honest just to say, I don't know. Relief. Relief. You don't have to know. Nobody's expecting you to know. You're all on the right track. Let me add another word. The word is openness. When we don't know, we're open to new information. We're open to seeing possibilities that perhaps we hadn't thought of in all of our certainty and all of our knowing. The world becomes alive with a kind of possibility that we hadn't even imagined when we let ourselves just say, I don't know. Let me just... Be, let me just see what's here. Like a child doesn't know. Look at all the children don't know. How do they learn? By being open, by being curious, by willing to be vulnerable, to question, to inquire. That not knowing has a lot of aliveness in it. So this reality of I don't know is very much a part of this experience that we have at times in our life of being lost, of being disoriented. But so much we get into that and then we immediately want to figure it out or get out of it or resolve it in some way. And we don't fully allow ourselves the experience of just giving ourselves the space to not know what to do, not know what the right thing is, not know which way to go. We might heed the advice of Yogi Berra. I call it the Yogi Berra Sutra. He says, what gets us us into trouble is not what we don't know, It's what we know for sure that just ain't so. I know a woman who had an awakening experience in her life and realized out of that that all of her old beliefs about life were untrue. She wasn't who she thought she was. Her life was not what she had thought it was. And she said she realized at that point that in order to stay awake, she would have to undo all of her beliefs, her former beliefs about what she thought was true. And so she went through a long process, actually, of deconstructing all of her old beliefs and judgments about herself, about others, about her kids, about her husband, about her life. She had to really consciously remake all of her judgments and beliefs. And she practiced asking herself, is it true? Belief would arise, she would say, is it true? Is this really true? And she found more and more that almost none of it was true, that most of it was a fabrication. So this points directly to a a paradox, which it seems that the more we do awaken, the less certain 
we may feel about many things. And so we have a choice. Do we want answers or do we want to be awake? Living with not knowing tends to further our waking up. Joseph Goldstein tells a story about practice. He said this many years ago, and I've never forgotten it. He said, you know, practice is like jumping out of an airplane or being pushed. Somehow you're falling through space, and you suddenly realize that you have no parachute. And then you realize that there's no ground. So what we have been pointing to on this retreat in particular is this long free fall into the groundless ground of your being. The only ground we may bump into in this journey is our attachment, our aversion, our judgments, our likes, our dislikes, all of our opinions and beliefs. This is where if we bump into something, it's usually of that nature. So now I'd like to tell you another story This is um, a story about a bear. Once there was a great black bear who lived in the mountains. He was happy and free. When he wasn't sleeping, he spent much of his time searching for food. Sometimes he found some and sometimes he didn't. That was his life. One day some men came and captured him and they took him to a large circus where they locked him in a small cage. Soon an animal trainer taught him to perform circus tricks. Each time the bear performed a trick correctly, he would be fed. The rest of the time he just walked back and forth in his cage. It was a small cage, so he got to know it very well. He always had enough food, and soon he forgot about his life in the mountains. But one night, after several years had passed, some vandals crept into the circus and broke open all the animal cages. The bear was suddenly free again, and he left the circus and found his way back to the mountains that had once been his home. But the mountains were now unfamiliar and it was not easy for him to find food. So he began turning somersaults, forwards and backwards, forwards and backwards. Some other bears were watching him and then, for a while and then asked him, What are you doing? <laughs> oh, he replied, I'm doing tricks so that I'll get food. And they just laughed and laughed and laughed. You Dumbo, they said, you're in the mountains. Who's going to bring you food for turning somersaults? You have to find it yourself. 
And this is also a story about meditation, because in meditation we discover that the old tricks don't work. Just as the bear has to be thrown back on its bare nature in order to remember who he is, just so we are being thrown back on our awareness nature and discovering in that a potential that we had forgotten about, that we had not remembered. This potential, we could say, is always with us, but hidden, like a jewel hidden in the hem of a, of a beggar's garment, unknown, undetected, but there. This jewel is awareness, what we have been pointing to on this retreat. It is easy to overlook it. Let me read you something of the Sixth Zen Patriarch from the Platform Sutra, written many, many years ago, but as timely today as it was then. He says, My good friends, my teaching of the Dharma takes awareness and wisdom as its basis. Never say mistakenly that awareness and wisdom are different. They are a unity, not two things. Awareness itself is the substance of wisdom. Wisdom is the function of awareness. At the very moment there is awareness, then wisdom exists. Good friends, this means that meditation and wisdom are alike. He also wrote it this way. Good friends, my teaching of the Dharma takes awareness and compassion as its basis. Never say mistakenly that awareness and compassion are different. They are a unity, not two things. At the very moment there is compassion, at the, mo- at the very moment there is awareness, then compassion exists. Good friends, this means that meditation and compassion are alike. So this awareness has within it the seeds of wisdom and compassion, both found directly in our own experience. And when we are allowing this awareness to be touched, to be sensed, to be known directly in our living, immediate experience, we are awakening this wisdom. We are awakening this compassion and it begins to function in our lives. And we could say that wherever we find ourselves in our life's journey, however confusing, however dark, however much it feels like we are lost and we don't know, we have this tremendous resource. We have this awareness. We have this seeds of wisdom and compassion within us. We only need to look within 
in the Buddhist um, cosmology, they talk about six realms of existence, and they're often pictured in the uh, tanka, like a. We don't have any here, but like a painting, and it's a, a usually pre- pre- um, depicted as a wheel, and there are six like pie slices, and these are called the six six realms of existence, and. I wanted to share um, what these realms are about. They're considered um, where we get caught. There are six patterns of fixation or repetition which keep us bound and unfree. And so I want to describe each realm. There's the hell realm, the animal realm, The hungry ghost realm. That's the realm where there's people with, um, sometimes you'll see it visually depicted, these little beings with tiny little mouths and skinny little throats, but big bellies. Like they're really hungry all the time, but they can't, because they have such tiny little mouths and skinny little throats, they can never get enough food. So they're called hungry ghosts because they're always looking for food. It's like the realm of, of insatiable desire. Then there's the realm of the jealous gods. The jealous gods are powerful and they've got a lot. You know, they've got a lot of what they want, but they never have enough because they're all jealous of each other. Well, you've got more. So there's not a contentment, there's not a peace, there's not a wisdom there. There's just this endless battle for more. Then there's the God realm. Again, a realm where there's a lot of um, pleasure, but not much wisdom. And then there's the human realm, the realm that we find ourselves in. And it is said that the human realm is a balance of suffering and pleasure, that we have just enough suffering to keep us awake and just enough pleasure so that it's not a hell realm we have times of relief from our struggles. And the human realm is considered the very best realm in which to awaken. Now what is interesting to me about these realms, one of the things, is that there, it's always depicted that in each realm there's a symbol of awakening. So that in the hell realm, there's a symbol of a bodhisattva of compassion holding a mirror, which means even in a hell realm, the possibility of awakening is there. In the animal realm, there's a bodhisattva holding a book, meaning that even in the animal realm, there's the capacity to awaken, to develop a self-reflecting capacity. In the hungry ghost realm, there's a, a bodhisattva with a bowl filled with objects that are meant to nourish and heal the hungry ghosts so they're not hungry anymore. In the god realm, there's a bodhisattva with a, with a flute meant to awaken the gods from their trance of pleasure. And in the jealous gods realm, there's a 
Bodhisattva with a flaming sword, which is meant to be the sword of discriminating wisdom, to sort of wake them up out of their endless fighting. And in the human realm, there is a Buddha as a symbol of the search for true self, the resolution of the question, who am I? So each of these realms, visually depicted and believed as a possibility, in each realm there is this potential for awakening. Just as in our own lives, whatever situation we find ourselves in, no matter how lost or difficult, there is that potential always there. Viktor Frankl, he was a man who lived through the experience of being in a death camp in Nazi Germany and wrote about his experience. Um, in one book I remember called Man's Search for Meaning. And he was a doctor, so he was... Um, part of his job in the death camp was to go visit um, patients. So he tells the story of visiting a patient, uh, a young woman who was dying, and she was, you know, in a kind of very... She was in a a room all by herself, and there was a one little window in the wall of the room where she could see out. And what she saw outside the window was a a bear tree that had one blossom, maybe one or two blossoms on it. It wasn't much, but that was what she saw as she lay there dying. So he visited her shortly before she died and and inquired as to how she was doing. And she, she said, you know, I'm really okay. And he said, I, I, she said, I have this tree here with me. And he inquired further about that. And she said, it comforts me a great deal to have this tree here. Because she says, I feel the tree is saying to me, I am here. I am with you. I am life, eternal life. Rather remarkable that a young woman, even in that desolate situation, could find that connection, that knowing that she was still connected somehow to something bigger than her own suffering. This direct immediacy of knowing that we've been encouraging on this retreat leads to an intimacy with life. You felt it on the first day and perhaps many moments since when we did that exercise of seeing and hearing and sensing. Like someone here said, they had an experience in that of total empathy. where We're just open to life in that direct, immediate way. One of my favorite um, descriptions of enlightenment that comes from Dogen, one of the Zen, Zen masters. 
He describes somebody's enlightenment as suddenly she was intimate. Enlightenment as intimacy with life, knowing that we are not separate, that we are, we belong to life. Nasargadatta writes, when you know beyond all doubting that the same life flows through all that is, and you are that life, you will love all naturally and spontaneously. When you realize the depth and fullness of your love of yourself, you know that every living being and the entire universe are included in your affection. But when you look at anything as separate from you, you cannot love it, for you are afraid of it. Alienation causes fear, and fear deepens alienation. It is a vicious circle. Only self-realization can break it. Go for it resolutely. When we come into some sense of recognition of our own nature, the presence of awareness, when we sense it, when we feel it directly in our experience, it feels like coming home and knowing that we are always held in love and compassion. At the same time, what it requires of us is a willingness to die, to let go, to surrender. So many of our habits, our beliefs, what we think we know, our opinions, our likes, our dislikes. This usually happens gradually. Although, to quote a teacher that Howie and I both spent time with, very remarkable being named Master Punjaji, who said, it can happen in a finger snap. I'd like to close with uh, T.S. Eliot. In order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which is the way of ignorance. In order to possess what you do not possess, you must go by the way of dispossession. In order to arrive at what you are, you must go through the way in which you are not. And what you do not know is the only thing you know. And what you own is what you do not own. And where you are, is where you are not. Let's sit together for a moment.
This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 8, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.